I don't know if there's a coach, coaching staff, or a coaching country that understands their players better than the American coach understands the American player. So in the end of the day, our coaches manage our players and understand just how much tactics we can put in there, how much inspiration needs to be doled out, how much little arm around, little love, little kick in the pants, little poke now and then. But we don't beat up our players. We don't teach them to overanalyze. Mm -hmm. We set them out on the field and we freaking set them free. You're listening to the Vision of a Champion podcast with Anson Dorrance, eight-time coach of the year, 22-time national champion, coach of the 1991 Women's World Cup team, Hall of Famer, leader, and mentor to so many in the soccer community. On this podcast, Anson brings on players and coaches to discuss what it means to be a champion, the drive, the passion, the desire, and yes, the stories. Here's your host, voice of the North Carolina Courage and North Carolina FC, Dean Linke. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Vision of a Champion podcast. I'm your host, Dean Linke, longtime soccer broadcaster and the longtime voice of the North Carolina Courage women's professional soccer team. Today, we will be flipping to Chapter 7, titled Technical and Tactical Development. The previous chapters primarily focused on the psychological components to improving your game. Now we are getting to the physical components. Here, Anson breaks down some good habits to improve your technique on the ball and lays out UNC's tactical strategy on both sides of the field. Chapter 7 even introduces Anson's famous, or depending who you talk to, infamous 3-4-3 formation. Our guest for today's episode is former UNC standout, and accomplished U.S. Women's National Team player and coach April Heinrichs. April played under Anson from 1983 to 86, winning three NCAA national titles and one second-place finish during her four years at Carolina. As a player, April Heinrichs scored 35 goals and 46 caps. In the first Women's World Cup in 1991, she scored four goals in five matches for the USA's first major victory on a world stage. She was an assistant coach under Tony DeChico and took over as head coach after the 1999 World Cup victory. With the world motivated to take down the Americans, April and her team held their ground, winning a gold and silver in two Summer Olympics and a third-place finish in the 2003 World Cup. In 1998, April Heinrichs was the first female player inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame, and indeed, rightfully so. We also get to hear from another National Soccer Hall of Fame inductee, the great Anson Dorrance, 22-time NCAA champion and World Cup champion coach. Anson revolutionized the women's game during the UNC dynasty, and after 40 years of coaching, he still finds ways to progress the game forward. April and Anson are two of the best people to talk about technical and tactical development, and we couldn't be happier to have them both here today. Welcome to you both, April and Anson. Thank you for having me. It's quite a pleasure. Yes, indeed. And Anson, you obviously knew what April Heinrichs could do because you brought her to UNC. But why was April an automatic for you as part of the USA roster in 1991? Let me share uh, what she's done, which I talk about all the time. Uh, I talk about uh, recruiting her and uh, 
I found out indirectly that it's not a story she likes. So I'm not going to tell it in front of her. Uh, but basically, when she came into my mm -hmm. culture at UNC, uh, she was a shark uh, with blood in the water. And I absolutely loved it. Obviously, what's really interesting in all the different cultures of developing elite competitive women have to go through this period. It's not a comfortable culture because it's not the way we raise our young girls and our young women to feel comfortable in this, you know, you want to win every game in practice sort of culture. Uh, but the thing I loved about watching April, and I knew she was good coming in, but oh my gosh, I didn't realize she was that good. And all of a sudden she's showing me in practice just how dominant she is, and not just in the occasional scrimmage or 6v6 game. She's dominant in everything, every 1v1 duel. Everything she did was right on the edge of her game, and I was thinking, this is incredible. And honestly, it shook some people up in our training environment. And they were a little bit concerned about how seriously April took everything. And April knows this because she's obviously coached a very long time and coach at a very high level. Sometimes you're protecting the people within your culture because they're doing things the right way and it's not making anyone else feel comfortable. And so what I loved was actually saying, no, 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 no. That's exactly the way I want you guys to compete. And I used April as sort of a model for the way I wanted my collegiate culture to be. Basically sharks with blood in the water. And then when I was appointed the US Women's National Coach, the first player I picked was April. Every player I brought in basically after her, I pointed at April and said, that's how we're going to train. We're going to train like sharks with blood in the water. So this culture that's still winning to this day, and it's not winning because we are the most advanced team technically. I would certainly give that to the Japanese or that we're the most athletic team because the French right now are just as athletic as we are or the most tactical team. I still think the Germans and the Swedes are in a different level tactically. The quality that separates us is the quality April brought to my collegiate team at North Carolina. And she was the role model for me for my national team in 1986. Because keep in mind, in 1986, when I was hired, the US had never won a game in international competition. Five years later, we were world champions. And we didn't do it the German way, or back then the Italians were really good, the Italian way or the Norwegian way, we did it the American way. And so April's mentality and her capacity to compete, the fact that we were all 1v1 gunslingers, that's the way we won in 1991. And April was for me that sort of soccer messiah that I built my UNC program on, but also the US women's national team on. April, even 30 years later, hearing Anson say you were the first pick for that U.S. team, that's got to mean something special. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just like the 91 World Cup, Anson's presence in my life is a treasure that is a gift that keeps on giving, too, because, you know, he's had so much longevity and he's been such a profound influencer in the game and on so many of the women that have influenced the game and so many women that have gone into coaching and coaches that have gone in. So, yeah, I mean, it, I can't say enough how much I respect and appreciate whenever he compliments me. It's shocking that this many years later, he still does it and that it's still, I know it's genuine that, it, it, that he reflects back to so many years ago and I'm flattered by it. And I wouldn't change my time at North Carolina for any other era. I wouldn't change my 
time with Anson. One of the things that I think that Anson and I did, we, we taught each other. So he, he told the story about how he uh, learned about my competitiveness. By the way, Anson, I don't know if it surprises you, but I recently watched the Michael Jordan series. <laughs> Does not surprise me. <laughs> People were calling him a jerk by the end of that series, right? And exactly. So maybe some people thought I was a jerk, right? But I found my friends. I found my social network. I found my like-minded people. You know, I always felt accepted socially. But yeah, I'm sure. I'm 100% sure that there were times where you know, for probably the first 30, 40 years of my life, I took myself very seriously. I competed at everything. Mm-hmm. It was it was my way. It was mm-hmm. what helped me get out of Colorado. It was what helped me get to college because mm-hmm. nobody had gone to college in my life, in my family. It's what gave me a coaching career. It's what gave me this drive to be the best coach I could be. I have to say that being a player was way easier, <laughs> way easier than being a coach. So, yeah, when I reflect back on my days at North Carolina, I, I cannot imagine a path any different than the path I had chosen. I went to North Carolina sight unseen. At the last minute, he says, by the way, you're one credit short. You got to pick up a summer class. And it was like, where is summer school now? I, got, I had to pick up a summer class to, to get there. Uh, by the way, when you arrived, there was actually no dorm because he didn't realize I was, I was technically a transfer student. So there was no dorm room for me. But I got there and man, did I, maybe I was a shark, but I was swimming with sharks and I knew it. And that's where I was happiest is swimming with other women that wanted to compete, that played the game, that gave it as much as they got it. And we all walked off the field friends. So I wouldn't change my decade, my era for anything on the planet. Indeed. I wouldn't change anything either. I felt like I had a front row seat to your brilliance. Before we go to work, I do have one thing to say, though, because I did get to see you play. And I lived in Colorado. And being from Littleton, when I think Littleton, Colorado, I think April Heinrichs. So, Anson, you might want to pipe in here. Kristen Hamilton had a breakout year this year for the Courage. She even got a cap for the USA. But I have a big problem with Kristen Hamilton every time I see her because she didn't know that April Heinrichs is from Littleton, Colorado, her same hometown. How can that happen? You got to respect your elders, right? You got to know who paved the way. Absolutely. Right, know who rode the boat before you got it. <laughs> I'm going to have a chat with Kristen Hamilton. Yeah, well, you know what I have really loved about the American women is they do look back at their history. Uh, and I think maybe less and less now, but there was a period when everyone did look back. I've always respected that in the culture of the extraordinary women is they know this was built on the backs of other women. And the thing I really love about having Foudy in such a, a prominent position is she has no issue sort of sharing this on a consistent basis. And, you know, there's a reason why tennis on the women's side does have equal pay with the men, because basically Billie Jean King fought tooth and nail to make sure that would happen. And so Fadi's association with Billie Jean is also part of what we're trying to do right now on the women's side to get equal pay for them as well. But let's be completely transparent about this. The culture that we developed back in 91 was uh, one of respect uh, because the coolest thing about that team in 91 is they played forever. I mean, Mia was 15 when we brought her onto that team. And so she played forever. So did Fadi. Uh, so did uh, Lily. And obviously, it's because their memory of the people that started this is still a part of their DNA. And the greatest thing about Foudy right now for me is she has that institutional memory of where the women's team came from. She's not shy at all 
of sharing all this on a consistent basis. And so I really appreciate that. So I don't know where Kristen's been hiding, but <laughs> if she hasn't been listening to Fowdy and about the history of the game, I mean, she's just got to get, uh, get to work because uh, that's been very clear from the beginning. Well, you said get to work. Let's go to work and dive into this chapter, Anson and April. Anson, we start with you. This is the chapter where you make your extensive argument for using the 3-4-3 formation. How did you decide that formation was the best for your team? Well, it's really funny. I was on a call this morning with Raymond Verhan. Verhan's talking about one of the big mistakes almost all the coaches in the world make is they look at the reigning champion. So right now on the men's side, it's the French. And they seem to think they can imitate what the French did, either in their academy teams or with the team that won, and then bring it into their culture, and all of a sudden it thrives. And it doesn't. You have to coach your team within the culture of your culture. So in the United States, here's what we are. First of all, we are competitive as hell. So I knew right out of the gate that I wanted to play a particular style that was competitive as hell. So what style did I want to play? I wanted to play in your face, baby. So we were going to have a line of confrontation, you know, 10 yards outside our penalty box. Hell no. You know, if you had possession near one of your own frigging corner flags, we're going to attack you defensively to try to win it back. So it didn't matter where you were, we're going to go after you. That's the American way. So this is our culture. What's another part of our culture? We're gunslingers, baby. I've got a six gun on my right hip and one on my left hip, we're gonna go out there in the street and let's see who's got the quickest draw. So how did we develop that team to win in 91? It was with one V one. We couldn't get together every week and play this possessional game where we played it around the back and then played a probing ball into midfield and then knocked it into the back again and then found another player that could face up in midfield and then found the feet of the nine who then you know played it off to the 10 and then no, 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 no. We couldn't play that way because to play that way, you've got to have basically, you've got to get together all the time. So that's not the way we played. So sometimes we got together once a year. So what do we tell the girls to work on? 1v1, 1v1. So when you came into camp, one of two things was going to happen. Either you were going to have to pass a fitness test, and if you didn't pass that, we were sending you home, or you had to play 1v1. So all of these players, and April obviously being an extraordinary example of this, came in as gunslingers, basically duelers, people that could beat people off the dribble, people that could stop people off the dribble. So in the front seven for the United States team in 1991, because we're playing obviously with a goalkeeper and three in the back, six out of the seven would rather beat you off the dribble than pass it. The only one in the front seven that would rather pass it than dribble was Shannon Higgins. So April at right wing, what's her quality? Give her the ball, get the hell out of my way. She's going through everyone. <laughs> Michelle Aker, same thing in the nine. Karen Jennings, uh, the same thing in the seven. So basically the whole front line, they're 1v1 artists. Who's at right midfield? It's Mia Hamm. What does she like to do when she gets it? Does she look up and sort of go, oh, where should I be passing the ball? Where's the win? No, no, no. She gets the ball, she goes through you. What does Lily do on the left? Same thing. And Foudy, who's in the middle of midfield, likes to gallop through midfield with a ball. So basically, we were a gunslinging team. That is the American culture. So everything I do at UNC and everything I did with the U.S. full national team was all about basically conforming to the way the Americans would love to play the game. So that's the way we did it. So it's a pressing game. It's about work ethic. 
It's about doubling at every opportunity. It's about winning the headers, winning the tackles, taking people off the dribble. That's the American culture. That's the American way. And so that's the way we've designed our teams back then. And to this day, we're still pressing. With the exception of Washington State last year, no one else in the U.S. presses. Are you frigging kidding me? Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break here to tell you about our sponsor, Soccer.com. Anson has been coaching for 44 years, and it seems like Soccer.com has been around nearly that long as well. It's pretty close, as the Soccer.com business has been family-run and based in Hillsboro, North Carolina since 1984. If you're a player or a coach who needs soccer shoes, equipment, gear, whatever it may be, do what the pros do. Head on over to Soccer.com. And this podcast is also sponsored by Continental Tire. No matter where the road takes you, Continental Tire provides the confidence to get you there. For any surface and every season, from passenger cars to light trucks, there's a Continental Tire that delivers superior performance. To find your ideal tire, visit ContinentalTire.com. Continental Tire, official sponsor of the Vision of a Champion podcast. Now, let's get back to the show. April, when you hear Anson talk about how he weaponized the 3-4-3 formation, can we get your perspective of what it was like playing in that formation? Yeah, I mean, I think that when you're a young soccer player, the first thing you want to hear is a coach give you freedom. And so Anson endorsed that, that freedom, the freedom to make decisions, to take players on, to take responsibility one versus one. And as a young coach, like I've tried to do the math a few times and my memory escapes me, but as a young head coach, he understood quite early that I'm going to give every woman this sense of freedom and this take responsibility. We used to always talk about the one versus one duel. So it's a simplification of the game. If you win your one versus one battle, and we do that all over the field, we win. So he empowers women to take the ball, make decisions. He empowers women. He can motivate a piece of grass to grow faster, <laughs> right? So uh, when you combine sort of this young, charismatic intellect that was using us as sort of his, I'm guessing, incubator, right? You would try something here and then you'd try something there. That's what I mean by a partnership. And uh, I want to get back to what he said about the U.S. team because, yes, I think Anson, as a really young coach, got it, got it well. My generation taught him some other things. like player management. You know, it's not just about standing on the sidelines and motivating players. You got to get in touch with the leadership, which I think he was, he was always probably putting his hand to the leadership prior to, you know, keep that professional wall between himself and the players before I got there. Once I got there, he started to realize that some of us women wanted to chime in on what we thought. Hey, I really think that Susie here could be a good wingback or, Hey, I really think, have you thought about Ruman? so-and-so with April to calm her down and get her socially accepted or have you thought about, so he started to learn about player management mm -hmm. and player management. It became, he was the master of it to this day. I am still fascinated by draws. So, you know, you talked about how Anson picked me as the number one player. I, I there was no draft. There was no combine, <laughs> but just the other day, there was a tweet that went out that had three rows of players. I don't know if you all saw it. They assigned a number value to each player on each of the rows. And you had to pick a 5v5 team with a certain amount of points. And I'm like, I would freaking win that game. 
<laughs> give me Sam Kerr up top and the cheapest goalkeeper in the back, we're going to win that 5v5 tournament. Because Anson taught us how to do these tournament draws. And Anson used to sit as a fly on the wall and listen to April Heinrichs choose so-and-so and why. And Julie Foudy choose so-and-so and why. And Marsh McDermott choose so-and-so why. And who went last was always important. Or who, why wouldn't somebody choose somebody? Anson started to learn the women's nuances and we were teaching him that. So I wanted to mention that in those days. But also to turn to your reference to the last World Cup, Anson, I had dinner with a friend from Australia Saturday night, and this is a true statement. I said, you know, we won the, the women's team won the World Cup, but I don't know if there's a coach, coaching staff, or a coaching country that understands their players better than the American coach understands the American player. So that ties exactly into what you just said. The French sometimes overanalyze and beat up their players right i think the we're just gonna let the paparazzi ruin england right because <laughs> <laughs> them up and spit them out in the end of the day our coaches manage our players and understand just how much tactics we can put in there how much inspiration needs to be doled out how much little arm around little love little kick in the pants little poke now and then but we don't beat up our players we don't teach them to overanalyze Mm -hmm. We set them out on the field and we freaking set them free. We set them free, make their own mistakes, learn from their mistakes. I referenced earlier how I'm not afraid to make mistakes. Fits of failure is how you get better at things. So Anson gave us an environment where we could make mistakes, gave us an environment where we had to take responsibility and you could make mistakes and you have to make your own decisions and you can make those mistakes. So uh, that combination was just a magical combination to create the culture, and I will forever, forever, as long as my brain cells allow me to remember things, I'll forever remember our humble beginnings as a collegiate team and also that transferred some to the national team. And Anson and I, together as a player and a coach in that relationship, that's worthy of a book, Anson. <laughs> oh, I think you've done that. Yeah, a great book. Sorry you know, for the long answer, but you got yeah. me all fired up there. That was oh, great, April. Yeah, we love when you get fired up, April. That's that's what makes you you. And Anson, you kind of touched on this already, but in this chapter, you explained that unstructured play and pickup soccer are so important for the development of a young player, yet it was not common for American kids to play pickup soccer during their free time when you wrote the vision of a champion in the early 2000s. Have you felt like soccer has become a more common playground game since you wrote the book? No, and it's a tragedy. And uh, what I loved what April shared, and let me just thank you, April. That was wonderful uh, because uh, I did evolve and I evolved by listening to the women because what I talk about all the time uh, and I've got, you know, leadership speeches when I talk about when I first started coaching the women, it was one mistake after another. They taught me how to lead them. And so April's right. It was a partnership. And what's sort of interesting now, what people are shocked with is I tell people, uh, I only make uh, three decisions in my program right now. I decide who starts, who subs in, and who travels. Other than those three decisions, all the other decisions are made by my leadership council, which is the team. And so as a result, their ownership of the team is extraordinary. So April knows this. I don't have curfew. I don't go from room to room to room to see if my kids are in their rooms at 11 p.m., I don't have rules about drinking. I treat my women like they're yeah. adults already. 
And I think they really appreciate that. Now, do they make mistakes occasionally? Yeah. On the field, do they make mistakes occasionally? Yeah. But I don't, you know, just lambaste them for it. No, we, we grow together in this. And I think there are other choices you could have made and they agree. And, and so April's absolutely right. So she was there at the beginning when honestly, I was searching for a partnership uh, because I didn't really have a really good understanding of this culture. I went to a boys boarding school. And one of the things I joke about whenever I speak is the closest I came to a woman in those days is I had the leading female role in the school playing my senior year. I mean, so that's my, that's my corporate speech humor. And so, yeah. And so what April's sharing is she's sharing that uh, they educated me. I wasn't comfortable with women and she's right. At first I called them all, you know, Rayfield and Heinrichs. And then I realized that is so stupid um, because they called me Anson. So yeah, I started calling her April and, she called me Anson, and so it was a completely different paradigm. But the paradigm shift was because of them. And because yeah. I'm realizing, you know, gosh, I am so stiff and uncomfortable. And all of a sudden, they made me realize, you know, if you allow yourself to be vulnerable, uh, trust me, we're going to trust yeah. you more. So a lot of this evolution in my leadership quality came from the players I was coaching. And right now, the players run the program. Doesn't mean we have, you know, recreational practices. No, I'm running practice, but they're running the program. So first of all, April is spot on with this. And for Anson, can I say, for all the coaches out there listening, I think that was a really important thing. I know Anson is self-aware enough to know that this is, it's not a, you know, realization today. Just hearing it probably reminded you. But also for when I, when all of us leave North Carolina and we go on to coaching, the First thing we realize when we start coaching is, oh my God, I am not Anson Dorrance. And I cannot, I cannot talk like him. I cannot motivate like him. And so there's this crisis that you have immediately when you start coaching. And I can remember having it at the University of Maryland when I got there. I'm not Anson. I don't coach like him. I can structure things. But what I took from him is exactly what he just talked about. So I'm going to recruit players. I'm going to put them out in environments and I'm going to watch them and I'm going to listen to them. And I can remember the first time we ever went to a flat back zone at the university of Maryland. And my center back was a very intelligent player. She was like, raising her hand, raising her hand, raising her hand. And I didn't have any of the answers. <laughs> and I was like, we'll see. It depends. Let's check it out. Let's look at the video, <laughs> you know? And so you start to listen to their questions and then all of a sudden I started filling in the blanks together with them, not spoon feeding them answers. So you take that in your own generation and in your own way. And then of course you learn to coach with your own personality. I do think it's super important, no matter what kind of coaching personality you have or background you have, you can learn from your players. And then all of a sudden when you watch them and you see a midfielder struggling, for example, again, I wasn't a, a center back and I wasn't a center midfielder you see a center midfielder who you feel like she'd be she should be stepping up to press and she's backing up backing up backing up you sit and talk with her you realize she's the slowest player on your field she don't want to go forward to press somebody she's going to get beat then you have to teach her if she goes and everybody around her goes we got this together so that's what you know Anson taught you how to listen to your players and partner with your players to help solve problems Incredible dialogue about the dynamic between these two all-time greats, Anson and April. April, I think it was timely and trending that you mentioned the last dance and Michael Jordan, of course, both of you, one of the ultra uber competitors to come out of North Carolina. 
I want to go back to that because as you watch that, now you say people think Michael Jordan is a jerk. When I think about, as you said, Anson could motivate grass to grow. You're right. I still remember the speech where he's talking about your intestines turning into diamonds. I'm like, wow, I want to play for this guy too. Now here you are with this triple-edged sword where Akers is going to score goals. Karen's going to score goals. You're going to score goals, let alone the other superstar players that Anson talked about on a team sport. How do you make sure you get yours, but you still get the victories? Uh, I never thought like that. How do I want to say that? You know, I had a knee injury right before the World Cup. I had surgery about two months before the World Cup. And I was struggling to come back, really struggling to come back. And I remember going to Anson. I don't know if he remembers this, but I remember going to Anson and saying, I'm smart enough to know that I'm not at 100%, <laughs> Anson, but I want to win enough that if you don't think I should start, I want you to not start me. I don't, do you remember that at all, Anson? I, I really. do remember that, but do you want, to, want my response to that or do you want to give the response? Well, I, I don't recall the response other than the fact that I started. Uh, <laughs> but my point, my point is, is to your question, Dean, ultimately, as serious as I was, as competitive as I was, as shark-oriented, by the way, I, I like to think I've turned into a dolphin now, Anson. <laughs> I, saw, I saw that, and some coaches have a hard time not starting one of their more senior players, right? And I wanted to win more than I wanted to start if I was going to put our team behind. And, you know, I know that there's times where you limp when you play. I was perfectly comfortable doing that with that. It wasn't about pain or protecting myself or fear of failure. It was literally, I know I'm not 100% here, so I'm going to take the pressure off of you, Anson. If you don't think I should start or I shouldn't play because I'm not contributing, I'm taking the pressure off of you. You have my permission not to start me. I just want to freaking contribute and win this thing. And Dean, it was that attitude that, of course, I was going to start her for sure. She was an extraordinary driving force as a leader. I mean, she was my captain. And so there's no frigging way I'm not, you know, rolling out my team without my captain out there. And then she did. She, had a, she still had a great tournament. And I love the Chinese description of those three. <laughs> Is there a better description than the, the triple-edged sword? Basically implying every one of these strikers can slice and dice you. Every one of them can, you know, inflict pain. And I thought that was an incredible description of that front line. And you know what's really interesting, and I don't know if, April, you're involved in this yet. I get dragged into this all the time. You know, what is the greatest front line in history? And consensus has it, it was your line. The triple-edged sword is the greatest front line in U.S. history. And they're all saying if a 91 team played the, you know, 99 team or this team played that team, and they're all dragging me into this. And, of course, I won't commit. But I love this. The consensus is the best front line of all time is Heinrichs, Akers, and Jennings. Well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I have no well, issue pretty, defending that. It's a pretty great starting lineup. It is a pretty damn good front yeah. line because, you know, you're, if you have one weak player in the back, they're going to get carved. If you're, yeah. you know, your center back is a problem, trust me, Michelle's going to destroy her. Yeah. If your left back uh, has any issues, April's going to destroy her. If your right back has any problems, Karen's going to destroy her. The balance in that front line and the different ways you guys competed and played was just fantastic. So for me, uh, 
that was an incredible front line. Anson and April, as we head down the stretch run of our time today, reminding you that the chapter seven is titled Technical and Tactical Development. There's a lot of discussion about 343 in different formations. At the end of the day, today, when you hear technical and tactical development, what does it really mean? I ask you both. Decision making. It really is about decision making because what we saw at the last, yeah, I mean, the 343 was a great system. And we really had two systems during maybe the 80s and 90s. People were either playing a 343 or a 433. In the 2000s, the 442 reemerged, and that's kind of been the most consistent system or some variation of that. But in the last World Cup, what we saw was a positional fluidity and formation fluidity. Mm-hmm. So we had players that maybe started in the back at four, but as soon as they regained possession, and they built out, their build out shape could vary. Some, they would release a asymmetrical wing back to go forward, or they would uh, send the two wing backs high and wide, drop a center back or a center mid back. So I think of technical and tactical development as being really decision-making. And when I think about systems of play, who knows, in like two more World Cups, we may not even have formations or systems. We might just have coaches rolling the ball out there and saying play. Because it was so fluid this past World Cup. Positionally, wingbacks would come inside. We started to see wingbacks come inside and build up. We're starting to see wingbacks get uh, some countries high and wide. So all of that fluidity was what the most recent World Cup tells us is going to happen in the future. And then uh, for me, uh, the way I construct teams is always based on how we can press. And so even if we're changing systems, for me, and Dean, we have changed systems in the last couple years uh, at UNC, uh, because for the 3-4-3 to thrive, both of your flank midfielders have to be extraordinarily fast, fit as can be, and uh, there was a three or four year stretch when we just didn't have that. So then we started playing different systems. And even last fall, my starters played a 3-5-2, and my reserves played a 4-3-3. And obviously, I'm very high on substitution, So we played two different systems because the personnel of the reserve team was completely different than the personnel of the starting team. And so, uh, but for me, all the systems that I want to play begin with how we're going to press out of the system. Uh, But April's right. Her first response to that question you you asked was, yes, it all comes down to decision-making. For you to develop any sort of uh, tactical nuance, how you make your decisions, the information you gather to make them, is the bottom line in developing a truly elite player. All right. This has been absolutely awesome. Two A's with two of the best A's of all time, Anson and April. It's been incredible. And April, no matter what Kristen Hamilton says, I mean this sincerely, to me, Littleton, Colorado will always be April Heinrichs USA without question. And Anson, I'm sure you'll put a stamp on that, right? Oh, absolutely. I just can't believe how did she get this far and not realize that she was basically being raised in the cradle of greatness. I am so disappointed in her. When I see her next, and it could be in a two weeks because, of course, she's 20 minutes away, I might just chastise her for this. All right. A vision of a champion from two of the all-time great champions. April Heinrichs, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Anson, thank you again for all the things that you've done for women's soccer and the way that you keep the the 80s and 90s alive and 
how you celebrate all of the people that you've been in touch with over the years. Thank you for all the gifts you keep giving. And um, yeah, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. Well, April, thank you. And all your words have gone right into the middle of my heart. So uh, that was all heartfelt. And I loved having you here. And trust me, as Haas knows, and he's listening, this is an incredible podcast. And this is, I love his expression for this. This podcast is evergreen. Uh, This will have value 10, 15, 20 years down the road because the stuff you're sharing, uh, April, is absolute gold. So uh, thank you. Gold indeed. And if you like this show, one way you can support our work is to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a rating and review as well. This show was edited and produced by Creative Allies. If you're looking for information on full-service podcast production, head on over to creativeallies.com. I'm Dean Linky. We'll see you next time on the Vision of a Champion podcast. Hey, everyone. I hope you liked this episode. And I just want to thank all of the people involved in making this happen and all of our sponsors, including outoffootball.com. In addition to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the usual podcast apps, you can listen to the show on outoffootball.com, which is a new women's soccer community that is helping elevate the sport through sharing some of the top women's matches, highlights, and athletes from around the world. Atta is enabling women's football to shine its brightest now and for generations of young female footballers to come. So visit adafootball.com to learn more. Hey fans, you can follow the Vision of a Champion podcast chapter by chapter by purchasing the hard paperback online. Simply go to ansondorancesoccer.com. If you are ordering the book, use promo code VISIONCHAMP. That's VISIONCHAMP to get a 15% discount And thank you for listening to the Vision of a Champion podcast.